Welcome to the Serving Leaders Podcast, where we talk about health and ministry leadership. On this episode, Dave Wiedis interviews Pastor Brett Hartman about the factors that led to his forced resignation and the process of repentance. If you would like to hear Brett's testimonial, please go to www.servingleaders.org testimonials. After listening, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars if you liked it. You can also go to www.servingleaders.org for more gospel-centered resources and to sign up for a newsletter to always stay up to date with Serving Leaders. Our guest today is Brett Hartman, and Brett has served in pastoral ministry for over 25 years. About two years ago, he was removed from his office as pastor for plagiarism, and he has been on a very redemptive journey since then. And I've had the privilege of coming alongside Brett, and I've been very, very impressed with him, both in terms of his honesty, integrity, as a person, as a pastor. And I see Brett as a person who has a lot to offer to both those who are in pastoral ministry, as well as those who are in the pews. So Brett, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you coming. I... uh, I know that it's got to be hard to talk about this, and I appreciate your honesty. And so let's just start out. Just give give our audience a little bit of your background in ministry. Well, Dave, thanks for inviting me to be on this podcast. And my wife and I began our ministry right out of college. We went on staff with a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, which many people know as Crew mm-hmm. nowadays. And we served at Indiana University. Uh, just uh, ministering to college students. It was a great time of our life. We did that for six years. Mm-hmm. And then I went for seminary training, began my training at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, down in Orlando, Florida. And then after two years, transferred up to Covenant Theological Seminary. Mm. At that time, Brian Chapel had just written his book, um, uh, Christ-Centered Preaching, and uh, it was kind of all the crave. So went there and spent four years uh, not only doing my MDiv, but beginning to do my studies for my THM. Mm. And uh, at that time, actually, um, my wife and I unfortunately lost a child. Mm. Um, my wife was in her, uh, you know, in late term, and uh, she was asphyxiated by the umbilical cord. So, oh, and at that time, we were embraced. I mean, it was really, it was it was tragic for us. Uh, mm-hmm. We were both struggling. But at the same time, we were at a church that just embraced us and loved us mm-hmm. uh, to such a degree that that was the the switching point for us. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point, I was thinking about going uh, an academic track. Mm-hmm. But at that time, uh, we fell in love with the church. We realized that the church could love in such a way that the world doesn't. And uh, we wanted to be a part of that. So that's a, that's a beautiful story in and of itself yeah. that the, you know you found that the church generally can be loving mm-hmm. because that's often not the not the experience of many people. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, keep going. So. Yeah, so we put our name in the hat. We started looking for jobs, applied for um, pastoral jobs, and I found a church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and so. Um, my wife was pregnant. We already had three kids. We packed up the van. We moved to uh, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and we began to do ministry there. And I was a pastor of this church. I actually began as the um, assistant pastor mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, became uh, the senior pastor and was there for 19 years um, until just about two years ago. So. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't think anybody really in the pastor finds themselves at this point, you know. But yeah, yeah. it was one of those things that um, a lot of things were going on in our life that uh, were very difficult and led us to uh, really a wall. Mm, mm. So, so talk about, let's just get this right out. You know, it, it, it's, it's not as if you're the only pastor who's ever taken other sermons or plagiarized, as you have put it. Um, what were some of the facts? Tell us a little bit about that, and then what were the factors that led up to that? Well, I think there's a number of factors. You know, when you're young and you get in the ministry, um, you'll have a lot of people, even in your own congregation, come and want to encourage you uh, on your preaching and the development of your preaching, right? Did you put, do you, I think you put the word encourage in quotes. Yes, that's right. Okay. So I had actually one elder come and give me an entire uh, case of Tim Keller sermons and wow. said, listen to these. These will make you a better a better preacher. So I started to listen to Tim Keller, and, and I have to be honest, I love Tim Keller. Yeah. I've, lo- I've learned so many things from him about the gospel. He's radically changed mm-hmm. the way I view my faith and mm-hmm. the way that I view God, too. But uh, from an early stage, yeah. I was listening, and then you know, the Internet came along, and then, you know, pastors use secondary sources all the time. Sure. And, and we love to hear other people because I think one of the, the things about being a pastor, which is unfortunate, is that we're always doing the talking and, mm-hmm. you know, we, all, we don't often get fed. Right. So we go to the Internet, we listen to pastors who feed us, um, we write down notes, you know, mm-hmm. and we take things that we find are insightful or sure. would be uh, strategically used for our congregation. Um, but I think... You know, the problem with that is that when you have that Mm -hmm. um, and life is going well and you're building in confidence, you're not expecting life to take a sudden turn. Mm. And for us, that turn was really having a son that dealt with mental illness, Mm. severe Mm. bipolar disorder. Okay. Okay. And, and so how did that impact you and impact, you know, your, your decision to start to use other sermons? Yeah, well, it, it became um, an issue because uh, the time uh, that it took to devote to my family, um, there were often um, times where um, I had to call other men from the church in to be with my family uh, to watch my son because sometimes my wife didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it just became one of these things where it's hard yeah. as a pastor because you're the one who are, you're leading other people. Yeah. And you're always the one who kind of has the answer to the problem. All mm-hmm. your counseling, everything you do. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize, wait, I have the problems. Right, right. <laughs> and you don't feel like there's a place where you can go. Um, you feel like you you are the one who has to answer those problems and be the solution to your own problems. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when you have a son with mental illness, there isn't an easy solution to that problem. Right, right. Yeah. And there were some also some other factors that contributed to uh, the difficulty of our situation. We had gone through um, a very um, hard kind of separation of a, a certain staff person. There were mean letters that were written anonymously to my wife that were, um, uh, they were very hurtful. They were right. harmful. Right. Um, and she really didn't want me to be explicit about 
the difficulties that were going on in our house mm-hmm. because I think we were a little naive. We thought they would change. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. thought this is a bump in the road. You know, things right. will get better. Right. And in fact, that's kind of the optimism I think I had, and maybe a lot of pastors do have, yeah. um, that, you know, they believe they're working for God. So when things are hard, I don't think they're really surprised when hardships come into the life sure. because we don't we don't plan our security in this world. We plan in the next one. But we do think that because we're working for God, mm-hmm. that God is going to kind of help us in this situation. That he's going to change the situation right. so we can continue to do the work that he's called us to do. Right. And so let's just take your son for a moment with mm-hmm. struggling with bipolar disorder. You know, people hear that and they think, well, that just means he was depressed sometimes and maybe he was up sometimes. But way more complicated this than that and way more um you know, challenging for you as a as a pastor, but also as a dad and as a head of your family. Right. And so I know that some of the things that took place were really challenging for you that took any reasonable person away from the ability to focus on ministry. And you had to attend to your family. You want to talk a little bit about that challenge? Yeah, it's hard. I just want to make the statement that yeah. I dearly love my son. And I, and I love all my children, and it breaks my heart that he struggles with mental illness, and it's a burden that he has to carry in this life. But mm-hmm. uh, at his most um, difficult points, uh, his low points, he was manic. He could be manic high or manic low. Mm-hmm. But he would do things like if we wouldn't let him use the car because he'd wrecked the car several times, he'd come and take our keys for all the cars and hide them or throw them around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He would... Uh, he would be violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he. Um, this is why I had to ask people to come over and and uh, be with my wife when I would go out on ministry obligations in the evening uh, sure. because she couldn't trust the mood swings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He would pick fights with uh, my my other children as mm-hmm. well. Right. Um, and even on Saturday nights, he would come and if he didn't get what he wanted, mm-hmm. he would come and try to pick a fight with me. Often. Mm-hmm. 1 a.m., 2 a.m., knowing that I had to preach the next day. Right. And right. Uh, really, it became almost a numbing thing. I, I, it's so hard when, you know, you, you cry out to God. And, and really, Tara and I were crying out to God over and over again to help us in this situation. Mm-hmm. But we would not see change. And it was only later that we realized with mental illness that it, it comes and goes. So it'd be like... You know, he'd have an episode, mm-hmm. things would settle down, right. but then at the most unexpected time, yeah. things would blow up again. Right. And, yeah. and, and so you, you said you start to get numb to it, yeah. and I'd imagine it's a little bit like walking on eggshells. You just don't know when the next crisis is coming. Right. And not only that, but there's a shame factor. So yeah. you, so not only are you like wondering what's going to come next, but then you're also trying to keep your household in order. Mm-hmm. You're trying to keep this from getting out to everybody else because yeah. you're kind of in a situation of a church where you don't know how everybody's going to respond to it. You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, in the church don't have a biblical understanding of suffering. Mm-hmm. They often think that God loves them when everything is going well. But the fact is, I think I learned this from C.S. Lewis, is that, you know, when, we, when everything's going well, that, that is, uh, that is the, the most unlikely time that we're 
calling out to God. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and right. God sometimes takes the comforts away mm-hmm. so that we actually are surrendering to him and becoming more dependent upon him. And right. so in a church, you know, you have people that are at different degrees of spiritual development. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it was like we had the police come to our house several times. My son is, you know, um, did some other things that, you know, got in trouble with the law, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I became personal friends with the district magistrate. All the police in our area know who we are. In fact, I mean, I I wrecked my car the other day, and the policeman who I called to come to write up the report stuck his head in my window and said, hey, how's your son doing? Uh I mean, uh this is how, you know, it it was just getting out there. So it was hard as a pastor to kind of keep that, you know, there was a real dissonance between wait a minute, I'm a leader in this community. I've shared Christ with people. We've had neighbors over. And then all of a sudden, the police are at my house and neighbors are scratching their head going, what's going on? Right. And so so on the one hand, you're trying to keep this quiet because of the shame factor. Mm -hmm. Because you're supposed to be the leader in charge and of great character and and, no problems in your family. That's at least the the idea there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're praying that God will take this away or heal your son, and that's not happening. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like um, over time you got worn down. And and also, yeah. just let me say, I know you will say this, that all the factors that we're talking about here are not excuses for mm-hmm. plagiarism. No, not at all. Um, yeah. I, I want to give you an opportunity yeah. just so that people can yeah. hear you, you talk about that right. because I, I know that you've been very sensitive yeah. about that. I, I wish I would have never <clears throat> plagiarized. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things uh, I love the, the most is, is preaching to my congregation, watching them grow in the freedom and the power of the gospel. It's, it's, it was so, um, it was precious to me. So to, uh, to be at a, at a point where, you know, you wake up and you realize that you've been using other people's sources. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, um, yeah, it was shocking. Shocking to you? Yeah, mm-hmm. shocking. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you added to everything else and what was going on in our life. It was, uh, it was a compound of events um, that uh, that I would wish on nobody. Sure. sure. I mean, it, it was it was debilitating <clears throat> in some ways, um, but. You know, there are no excuses for plagiarism. Yeah. I mean, when, when you become a pastor, you are entrusted by God and by that congregation mm-hmm. to teach them God's word. You know, in some ways, you're a prophetic voice to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. to uh, to get to a point where you are uh, using other people's things, there's so many things that are revealing in this, okay? Mm-hmm. So so the, the first thing is, there is obviously a huge discrepancy or a huge gap between the words I'm speaking mm-hmm. to God's people and what I am personally experiencing in my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the the nature of deception. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. Because you, you are you are presenting yourself as, as something that you're not. You're an actor on a stage. You're not being honest and real with what's going on in your life and, and what the Lord is doing. And I have to be honest with you, I didn't know what God was doing at that time. It was so, it was dark, it was heavy, it was complex. All the people around me who I loved were hurting so bad mm-hmm. that it was different. It was difficult. But, you know, if you as a pastor keep pushing forward, mm-hmm. what's going to happen is that there's going to be a greater separation 
between who you think you are yeah. and who you actually are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you begin to live, I would call, in a spiritual unreality. Hmm. Hmm. And you have to make a lot of um, concessions uh, to do that. But it really stems from the spiritual exhaustion that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. at some point in time, enough things are going on in your life where you really don't think <clears throat> you can actually carry out the responsibilities that God and that congregation has entrusted you to do. Mm-hmm. Um and so, so when you come under that pressure that you feel like you can't carry out what God's entrusted you to do, what the congregation has entrusted you to do, at that point, what did you do? You know, how did, how did you gut through that in a negative way? I mean, that's what you're talking right. about here. It's like you, you continue to act in certain ways. Right. Um, in, in, a, in a sense, faking it. You know, the person on the inside is different than the person on the outside. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it was like, if it was a good week, right, and we didn't have interruptions, uh, I would do my own my own sermon. Mm-hmm. But if it was a horrible week, and let's just say, you know, the Saturday was gone, and the Friday was exhausting, well then, you know, you, you do what you do, because you got to get up in the pulpit Sunday morning. And deliver. And you got to deliver. Yeah. And I didn't really have, um, I didn't have the moral fortitude to get up in the pulpit and to say, I just had the worst week of my life, mm. and I, I don't have anything to share with you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or I don't know where God has me, right? Or I'm, I'm in the dark night of the soul right now, and I don't know how to get out, right? Right. I mean, did you? What prevented you from asking other people to come into the pulpit or other elders to come alongside? What what were the factors there? You know, I think it was interesting. I think part of it was um, perhaps my my own pride of the 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 kind of carrying on the responsibility Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what I was called to do. Right. Um, At that point in time, we didn't have any other uh, really teaching elders on yeah. staff. Yeah. There were elders that wanted to preach occasionally, mm-hmm. but that always came with, you know, the reciprocal kind of, you know, feedback from the congregation. Some people liked this person. Some people didn't like that person. So it became almost a difficult thing. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you yeah. wondered, you it's, know. There was a cost to it. There was a cost to it, yeah. Right, right. So... I know that there came a time when you, when there were there were suicide attempts over years, yeah, and and you were really up against the wall there. And then just talk about some other factors in the congregation. For example, I know uh, this happened when COVID hit, right? Yeah. So um, talk about some of the factors of COVID and creating tension in the congregation and or on staff. So. Over the period of six years, my, my son tried to take his life five times. Mm. Um, you know, halfway into this, we we hired a new uh, staff person, a leader of worship. Um, it became apparent kind of early on that perhaps we came from different sides of the street in the way that we mm-hmm. thought about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when COVID hit, that... Like I think a lot of pastors experience that created a, a very polarizing effect right. within our congregation and even within our staff team. 
Um, I mean, I remember one time my son had fled to Florida, and uh, he wasn't even supposed to be out of the state, and I had to go rescue him, and I found him. I was so thankful to the Lord that he was alive, that mm -hmm. I brought him back, mm -hmm. that he was getting help. But one of my staff members, uh, his reaction was, well, you need to quarantine yourself for 14 days. <laughs> so it was just a weird, you know, yeah. and not only that, but then all the tensions of, you know, do we have an online uh, service? Mm -hmm. And if we have an online service, do you just preach or do you have a band there? And you remember at one point sure. in time, if you have a band there, do you have to be six feet apart or 12 <laughs> right. feet apart? Can you touch something? Can yeah. you not touch something? Right. Uh, it brought a complexity in the midst of an already growing exhaustion for me that mm -hmm. uh, it was it was hard to uh, it was hard to carry. Right, right. So so let's talk about what happened. You were the the plagiarism was discovered. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, you had returned from a trip um, or a vacation time. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I mean because of the nature of my son's illness, my family had not been on a vacation for about three and a half years. Yeah. So every time we would try to go, we'd get, he would sabotage it. <laughs> mm. And so finally my wife said, you know, I got to get out of here. You know, I'm going to go back and see uh, my mom. Her dad had passed away years earlier of pancreatic cancer. So we left. Mm. And uh, while we were there, kind of enjoying ourselves, I, I really felt uneasy about it because we didn't take our son. And uh, we knew we couldn't because the last time we took on vacation, he got in fights with people, different things like that. So um, we were down there and we get a call back and he had tried to kill himself again. Mm. Uh, so we jumped in the car. We cut our vacation short. We got back and uh, I got back on a Friday at about uh, 12 o'clock. And then uh, the next day, Saturday 11, I get a call. Uh, from men on the session basically wanting to speak with me mm. and then it was the next day that they basically already had uh, separation papers signed that he had they had prepared two weeks earlier and basically said you know we we caught you plagiarizing the presbytery knows that you're plagiarizing and uh, you know here are your separation papers so there was no um request for an explanation there was just simply here's the resignation letter yeah. sign them yeah i mean i the the session knew i'd been sharing with those men the the depth or the degree of difficulty i've been having at home mm -hmm. with my son mm -hmm. um but i think it, it came to a point dave where i shouldn't have been in the pulpit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it was just the, the exhaustion was so beyond anything I, I could have ever experienced Yeah. Um, that I, I wasn't really even in my right mind. Right, I mean, right. So nevertheless, you stayed in the pulpit way too long. Yeah. And you come back and you're asked for resignation. And I would imagine that there's a combination of two things there. Number one would be the shame of that. But number two, maybe a feeling of betrayal. Like, wait, is anybody going to do any pastoral care? Even if it's even if it's pastoral discipline, mm -hmm. you know. But care, like care for your soul, was no one doing that? <clears throat> well, it, it was it was a very abrupt meeting. Sure, where they had the 
You know, they had the, the, the copy of the sermon. They had highlighted the areas that were plagiarized. They're basically mm-hmm. saying, you plagiarized. One elder, yeah, one elder told me that, you know, he couldn't trust me to baptize his kids anymore. Another elder told me that I was like a banker who was embezzling money or a man who committed adultery. Um, another elder said that he had just written up these separation terms, but he had actually written them up weeks earlier. It was just a surreal thing. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I don't think there was evil intent there. I just think there was there were men who were trying to do what the presbytery wanted them to do but knew it was going to be a, a hard situation. I mean, I've been at the church for 19 years. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, because of that there was really no there was no real attempt to reach out and to to work with me to understand the complexity of my life and what we were going. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, it became a, a scary thing. I mean, sure. I always, I describe sure. it like you're on a train, you know, you have to get off the train, but every time you get to the door and you see how fast you're going, you don't want to jump off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's almost like God said, boom, <laughs> you're off. So he, he, right. you got pushed off. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode at Serving Leaders Ministries podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate it five stars. For additional resources or to find out more about our counseling services, you can go to www.servingleaders.org.